Welcome to the Filling the Pearl podcast. My name is Greg Ashman. My uh, very special guest for this episode is Pam Snow. Welcome. Thanks, Greg. Uh, Pam is Professor of Cognitive Psychology at the School of Education at La Trobe University here in Victoria, my state. Um, am I right in thinking that's a relatively new role, Pam? You are indeed, Greg. It's a role that I um, uh, commenced at the start of this year in early February this year and indeed it's a newly created role in the School of Education at La Trobe University and it reflects um, a significant um, reorganisation and reorientation of the School of Education at La Trobe University under the leadership of the new Dean who was appointed at the end of last year, Professor Joanna Babousis. Um, and one of the other portfolios that I have as Professor of Cognitive Psychology is heading up um, a, uh, an education discipline um, specialty area or an EDSA, which is learning sciences. So I'm responsible for overseeing how we approach the question of learning sciences in the school. So it reflects a very significant um, reorientation of the school, the fact that this position has been created. I have to say, for me and and my preoccupations as a teacher, the the idea that cognitive psychology and the school of education, a school of education, are coming within each other's orbit is very exciting. We've been, um, I I think, for many people, a seminal moment was reading Dan Willingham's um, "Why Don't Students Love Like Love or Like School Like," I think, Um, and and first being, and that for many teachers that was their first introduction. To cognitive psychology um, mm. and uh, for a lot of time a lot of the discussion in, on blogs and on Twitter has been this, this is really important stuff for teachers to know so it's not everything there is to know about education of course it's not but it's very important stuff that is foundational in a way and it's been largely absent from certainly from, it was from my training and from training a lot of the people I talked to so the idea of those coming together and having a faculty of education that talks to cognitive psychology talks to the science of learning that seems like a really positive development absolutely it's very um exciting dare i even say it's very progressive um, (laughs) um, to be thinking in this way and i'm very excited about it and um i was really delighted when um when the workload was being allocated at the end of last year that i was told that i would have responsibility for a big first year subject um, called Child and Adolescent Development. Um, so that's been a fabulous opportunity for me to get in at that ground level. Um, and look, I'll, I'll be honest, I've got more work I want to do in this um, subject. Once you teach something for the first time and you know this yourself as a teacher, you kind of have to get the helicopter view of it um, in doing it once. Yeah. And and I was to some extent um, building the aeroplane and um, flying it. And I don't mean in saying that um, that it was in bad shape. It wasn't in bad shape that I want to be able to put my stamp on it. Um, so it was a great delight for me to be able to introduce these first year, first semester, first year Bachelor of Education students to cognitive load theory, to yes. talk to them about working memory, Um, to to get some of those really, what I think of, and I know you do too, as really foundational core principles 
into the first semester of first year. Um, so they're not a bolt-on later on. Um, you know, yes, they heard about Piaget and yes, they heard about Vygotsky, um, perhaps not quite so much as they might have in previous years. Um, but um, yes, it, it was a great delight. And you know, to be able to talk to them about David Geary's work and introduce them to the idea of some things being biologically primary and some things being biologically secondary. Um, and of course, as you probably know, um, my colleague, Associate Professor Tanya Seri, has also joined the School of Education. Yeah. And we're working hand in hand and trying to build consistencies across subjects, um, particularly in that first year space. I think um, when you go back through the research literature, one, one of the problems, um, well, there's a, there's a lot of problems with educational research, but one of the enduring problems, and I was talking to Dylan William a little bit about this, and he had a, an interesting take on it, is uh, implementation. And one way around that is the sort of Zig Engelman approach where you literally script everything you want the teachers to say and that way they can't not implement it as intended but virtually unless you go that far uh, in every other situation teachers are going to put their own spin or they're, mm. they're going to select from the menu in a particular way and mm. um, because you have to be adaptive uh, in the classroom that you, well unless you're working with a script and most of us are not you you are reacting to the students you are you look you're looking at the faces that look a bit confused and and that's mm -hmm. that's one of the reasons actually why live teaching i believe is more effective than um the kind of remote teaching that we've had to do recently but that's a digression but um uh, but can I say that those same principles apply in higher education? As absolutely. Well? We, we don't teach from a script. We, no. we try to be rigorous yeah. um, and evidence-based, evidence-informed, however you want to frame it. But we are also reading the play yeah. um, and watching the cues for interest, understanding and, and so forth. Yeah. And I don't necessarily deliver the same lecture the same way every time I deliver no. um, it. And, and the formative assessment, which obviously it, it's harder to do in a in a large say lecture setting but in a classroom setting the formative assessment evidence you're collecting but the, the point I, I suppose i'm trying to circle back to in a rather roundabout way is if people have some good principles that they understand like cognitive load and um those sorts of and and then when they are making those choices that they inevitably will have to when they're trying to implement a program the the choices are likely to go in um with the grain of the research than be uh, just within the experience or interests or, or, or other ways that teachers would make those decisions. Because a lot of what we have is craft knowledge, some of which is vital. I mean, you can't get by without it, but some of it, it would not necessarily align with um, what, the, what cognitive what the science would tell us. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. Yes, so it's been an interesting first semester, given that I had three weeks of face-to-face -face teaching. And mind you, this subject yeah. has 600, it, well, it had at the start of the year, six, um, over 600 students Gosh. across four campuses um, and uh, across a number of disciplines. Most of them are education students, but quite a few health students take this subject oh. as elective. Um, and we had 17 shoot groups. Um, now, when in my day, I'm going to date myself here, in my day, a, a tutorial um, was 10 people. These days, a tutorial is 30 people. Um, 
So, um, but still we had, you know, 17 um, troop groups. So there are a lot of moving parts in this subject. And, um, and of course, week three um, lockdown hit and we had to put everything online. So um, it's been a little bit of an unusual um, return to the teaching space for me, but I have absolutely loved, really loved being in contact with first year education students. Um, and they've they've been um, overwhelmingly positive and enthusiastic and um, willing to adapt to the challenges that the semester threw up for everyone. I think uh, education students generally go into it for the right reason. I was talking to Catherine Burble Singh on the podcast, and she was saying this idea that teachers go into teaching because they want to control children or or make them obedient or something. That they go into teaching because they, her, her um, explanation was they want to walk the corridors talking about Aristotle, um, <laughs> but they want to save the world. And, and you get a lot of, so you get good people going into it, but I, you, I don't think we always serve them very well. So when we employ graduates, we give them some readings and they like, gosh, this is very different to what, yes. <laughs> what I was told at university. So I don't think we necessarily, so I, I suppose what I'm saying is I'm very excited about what you guys are doing at the Trobe and I wish you well and I, I hope that uh, in the fullness of time, yeah. Well, I, I hope that um, we're building a bridge to um, to practice, um, and we'll. You know, I'm hoping that Latrobe graduates will be really highly sought after. Yeah. Um, in the marketplace, because of you know a point of difference around um, what they will know and understand um, about human learning, um, and you know, there's a lot of um, content that I think of as being the family child for education that really earnestly belongs to teachers and you know through a series of historical um, shifting uh, of the sands um, ha has been gradually eroded and so you know I, I see this as a great opportunity to to give that back and not have um, teachers having to go on these um, painful expensive epiphanies um, yes uh, after they graduate yes yeah which a lot of uh, a lot of us have done um yeah you, you haven't always obviously it's a new role so you haven't always been professor of cognitive psychology could you hmm. tell us a little bit about your journey uh, how you started off and how you arrived at where you are today yeah, you hear a lot of people when they're asked this question, particularly when they're around my age, say, well, I haven't had a straight line sort of journey and yeah. I certainly haven't had a straight line journey. Um, but I think that's probably more the norm than the exception. So you're right, I did start off in um, speech pathology or speech language pathology as it's increasingly being referred to. Um, and I initially, through a series of um, circumstances, and I'll try not to be too detailed, <laughs> Um, but I, I worked in the area of acquired brain injury when I was a new graduate, and I really enjoyed that field. So it was very neurosciencey, neuropsychology, um, but also, um, you know, quite interesting and taxing in the interpersonal space because most of the um, uh, patients, if you like, that I was working with were young people who had had acquired brain injuries in um, motor vehicle accidents. 
So I was very fortunate in that role to be part of a, a very um, energetic, innovative team in the early 80s that established Victoria's and uh, possibly Australia's, but certainly Victoria's first specialised brain injury rehab team at what was back in the day um, called Bethesda Hospital. It's now um, part of Epworth Hospital, um, working in conjunction with the Transport Accidents Commission, who wanted a dedicated, high-quality, world-class service for people with acquired brain injuries. And that led to my PhD. Um, so I did a very neuropsyche um, kind of PhD. Yep. Um, I had always been interested in the um, in possible pathways to dual qualification in psychology. I think I was also always a bit of a frustrated psychologist. And doing my PhD um, in the area of ABI under two neuropsychologists um, certainly um, made that itch even stronger. Um, but when I finished my PhD, um, and I worked, I actually worked at La Trobe at Bandura for a year and, and taught there as a year, for a year, which I really enjoyed. But I was a little bit, um, I don't know that I'd say I was restless, but I was conscious of the fact that my skill set at that stage was pretty narrow. Yeah. So it was narrow and deep. Um, and that, Which is typical uh, for a PhD yeah, that's Reason. right, in a clinical kind of yeah. area. But if I'm not careful here, and you know, bearing in mind that I worked for, um, I worked clinically for about um, a bit over a decade um, and had two children before I did my PhD. Um, so I was in my late 30s by the time I finished my PhD. Um, and I thought, you know, I've got to do something here to broaden my horizons yeah. um, so that I'm not locking myself in. Um, and so I just started applying for a range of different um, university roles and um, applied for a job as a research fellow in a conjoint appointment between Deakin University, School of Psychology at Deakin University and the Australian Drug Foundation and knowing nothing about um, drug and alcohol, um, the whole drug and alcohol field. It was predominantly an education prevention role, so a lot of work um, in and with schools, which I really enjoyed. Yeah. Um, now, via a long story that's probably a story for another time, that created the opportunity for me to, uh, to go down the supervised practice pathway to gain registration as a psychologist. So I had managed at that stage to meet the academic requirements, but I needed to do two years of supervised practice, which I was able to do because of the variety and complexity of the roles that I was working in, both clinical and research across those two um, work sites. Yeah. Um, and in my role with the Australian Drug Foundation, I was involved in um, research, quite a lot of research on adolescent mental health. Um, yeah. And that got me reading the adolescent mental health literature, which got me looking at lists of um, risk and protective factors. And I remember one day, you know, that there was a, a seminal moment, I yeah. suppose, a light bulb moment, where I was looking at a list of risk and protective factors for adverse outcomes or, or for outcomes in adolescence with respect to mental health. And I noticed that if you look at um, the list of risk factors, at the top or very close to the top, you'd see poor academic achievement. Yep. Looked at a list of protective factors. At the top or close to the top, you'd see um, academic achievement, so yep. do, doing well academically. So there was no sense that academic achievement was going to 
Teflon coat anyone. Um, but it was clear from whatever it was that I was reading that it was very good for young people to be achieving academically, to feel a sense of connection to school and to be, um, to be doing well. Not, not, not just surviving at school, yeah. but to you know, actually um, doing well. Thriving. Thriving, absolutely. Yeah. That's what I'm looking for. <laughs> um, and that got me thinking then, sort of peeling the onion, I suppose. Well, you know, who does, who gets to do well academically? And uh, this was very much my speech pathology lens. Yeah. Well, in order to do well academically, you've got to have good language skills, reading, writing skills. Um, so, so who gets to have those skills? Um, and that just got me thinking more and more about, um, you know, the, those early, um, what happens early on, how we set children up for success. But also at the other end, it got me thinking about, well, who are the young people who really embody um, multiple risks? And of course, the answer to that is young people in the youth justice system. Yeah. Um, and so completely naively, um, I, I realise now in hindsight, I um, decided that I'd knock on the door of youth justice and say, you know, hello, I'm a speech pathologist and I'd like to do some research on the language <laughs> skills of, of young people in youth justice. Yeah. Um, and, you know, look, I was just incredibly fortunate that I happened to knock on the door of somebody who kind of got it um, because at that stage there hadn't been... Um, uh, there, there, there was one uh, one person in the children's court who had an interest in this area, but there hadn't been any full-scale um, research. So, um, so I started doing research on, um, on on the oral language abilities of young people in the youth justice system. And at that stage, I wanted to stay away from literacy because I wanted to really put a focus on oral language because I could see that it had been really neglected. There was already quite a body of literature telling us that young people in the youth justice system have very weak academic abilities. Yeah. They've departed from school very early with a very weak um, academic profile. So I wanted to shine a light on their language skills. And part of the reason for doing that was to look at what that means for forensic interviewing what that means for how we train police, yeah. um, what that means for um, processes like restorative justice conferencing, which are very, um, very much entrenched in our um, youth justice system in different ways across different states and territories in Australia. Um, but, for example, in Victoria, <coughs> unless it's changed since the last time I looked, in Victoria, um, a young person... Uh, who pleads guilty um, and whose victim is agreeable can have a, a restorative justice conference, which is properly professionally facilitated, yeah. or they go back to court for sentencing. And the outcome of that conference is taken into account in the sentencing process. Yeah. Uh, and philosophically, I am completely on board with approaches, you know, what, what we call therapeutic jurisprudence, um, because we know that um, punitive approaches, um, severe, harsh punitive approaches with these young people um, create worse outcomes, um, because overwhelmingly they come from very damaged, chaotic um, backgrounds to start off with. So giving them more of the same at a system level actually doesn't work if, yeah. if, you, if you 
for working, getting a better outcome. Um, but I did have questions about, um, uh, you know, the, how appropriate it might be to have a lot hanging on a very verbal process for um, young people whose verbal skills we, we had by then established as being really very weak. So I guess it's a missing piece that I haven't previously mentioned that right from the start, we showed that this is a population of young people with high levels of previously unidentified language disorder, you know, what we now call developmental language yes. disorder. Yeah. Um, but their difficulties hadn't been um, detected as such. And I think in many cases, because of the masking effect of their behaviour difficulties, yeah. um, um, in general, I guess, their mental health problems. I always, um, when I give presentations in, um, to teachers and to youth justice personnel and police and what have you, I'm always at pains to say when we talk about mental health problems, we have to remember that we don't have behaviour problems over here and mental health problems over there. Mm. Um, and, you know, you can like and love the DSM, and you and I have had some interaction about the yeah. DSM before, and I'm no fan of the DSM, but I do think it's important that we remember that externalising behaviour problems are mental health problems. It's not yes. developmental normal for an eight-year-old to be kicking, biting, scratching, stealing, um, you know, they're, they're signs of dysfunction. Yeah, just um, like internalising. Um, yeah, that's right. Yeah. And, and what, what we see in these young people, of course, is the externalising. Yeah. Um, we see the conduct, the oppositional defiant disorder, the attentional problems. The research tells us that um, young offenders also have high rates of anxiety and depression, um, but of course that's not manifesting in the way that it manifests in um, more, um, more pro-social peers, if yes. you like. Um, so, so we put a lot of emphasis in the early years on the implications of the research for forensic interviewing, for court process, for restorative justice conferencing um, but increasingly and that that's been very well received i have yes. to say um, that the judicial colleges around australia have been incredibly receptive to our research and very eager to be nimble and responsive in changing their practice i'm about to rewrite a whole lot of court documents for one of the jurisdictions actually because they recognize that giving um, 14, 15-year-olds documents to sign about their bail conditions that may as well be written in Swahili yes. um, is just setting them up for failure. Yeah. Um, so I've been tasked with the job of turning them into plain language statements that still comply with the legislative requirements. Um, but increasingly, um, what I started to get interested in was the upstream. Um, so what, what was happening that was meaning that these young people were um, effectively really, um, well, in, in a formal sense, they were departing school at year eight. But when we talked to them, it was obvious that they had detached from school really um, and I don't have a scientific basis for this. This is impressionistic from yeah, our um, yeah. structured interviews um, that, that really the transition from primary to secondary um, was the killer um, for them. So they, they were able to be held to some extent at primary school, but the transition to secondary school where, you know, as you know, the you know, 
the pastoral care systems, the support structures, the timetable, everything is just completely different. And, um, and there's no sense in which people are being um, given devoted, dedicated time in the day for things like reading, writing and spelling, because now it's about um, engaging with the, the curriculum, the social curriculum, history, um, whatever. So that really got me doing a bit of a deep dive into reading, which is always an area that I had been interested in. Um, yeah. And as a parent, of course, I had, um, you know, experienced um, early um, reading instruction. And I suppose in the case of my own children, it didn't matter terribly much what was going on in the classroom because I was doing my own thing at yeah. home. You know, I was fortunate to have two kids who, who got it. Um, and so it wasn't a major preoccupation of mine as a parent, but I'd, I'd followed the, um, the National Enquiry and, um, and so I started reading more and more and asking more and more and thinking more and more about um, the first three years of school and how profoundly important they are for these children who, you know, I have to be careful, not everybody likes the term vulnerable or disadvantaged, um, at risk, but they are all of those things. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm not sure what the better term is that we should call them. There are kids who have this confluence of risk factors around them at a community level, a family level, a school level, and an individual level. Yeah. Um, and, you know, for me, school needs to be the, um, it needs to be the turning point. It needs to be the thing that changes their trajectory and makes a difference. And I cannot get past the fact that, oh, sorry, now my computer's decided to tell me that I need a software update. Having thought that I turned all my notifications off. I can't get past the fact that what happens in the first three years of school is absolutely critical. And if we don't get that right, we are just playing catch up forever. Yeah. And, you know, we're on a hiding to nowhere um, in trying to catch these kids up. I think there's a number of things. I, I do want to get into the reading because obviously that's, that's a, a meaty issue. But before we do, there's a few things there that I just find really interesting. So uh, one of the narratives you'll have in many schools at the moment is um, a perceived conflict between academic, academic achievement and mental health. So mm. academic outcomes are placed in conflict and and you might if you were being cynical um think of it as something of an excuse so a school could say well the academic outcomes of our students are not great but we're looking mm. after the whole child we're making mm. sure that their mental health is attended to etc and then uh, they would characterize a school where, which does get good outcomes as well they must not be doing that they must but actually what you're kind of what you suggested is that that a central perhaps plank of well-being for many people is a, a degree of academic success absolutely absolutely um and you know i i will die on the side of a hill on on that one um you know i think you know if you're going to say you're looking after the whole child then you have to be addressing academic achievement. You're not actually looking after the whole child. 
if you're only thinking or trying to think in the most well-intentioned way about that child's emotional um, well-being um, because, you know, a child who's anxious um, is often anxious about um, being able to learn and being able to perform academically. And if you can show them through your knowledge of learning science and scaffolding and task design um, and opportunities for repeated practice and mastery that they can achieve, you know, that has to be good for their self-esteem. Yeah. Um, and and their um their, their willingness and desire um to to be at school yeah so, I, I looked into a lot of that um so i not a lot of that who am i trying to kid i'm no expert but uh, one of the thing one of the criticisms that gets leveled against cognitive load theory is it takes takes no account of students motivation so it um well no it doesn't and john Seller would say well it's it's not meant to it's that's outside the theory mm. So I've looked at motivation because what people will say is, well, cognitive load theory might be the best way to, and they'll do it pejoratively, you know, cram kids through full of facts. But um, they'll be, it'll, they'll leave them demotivated and, you, and we need mm. something else for motivation. And so I started looking at motivation and I realised that, well, I, I think most people in education have got motivation wrong. They think first you must motivate the students and then they will learn. Whereas when I started reading uh, around the issue if anything the the direction of causality is stronger the other way that learning leads to motivation and of course mm. I'm, I'm willing to accept that probably it's iterative so uh, you mm. learn you become more motivated you become more motivated you learn. but this idea that many schools have that will will stick a uh, a professor of physics who's pretty groovy in front of the kids for half an hour and then will motivate them about physics and then from then on they'll be interested in physics. It just, it, it's flawed. Well, I haven't seen any evidence that it works. Um, and, you know, I, I do absolutely think that um, schools need to be able to do both. Um, and, you know, we can draw on our own personal experience. You know, I know that's um, a, a very precarious position for a professor of cognitive psychology to take. But, you know, if you think of trying to learn anything, a sense of achievement and mastery makes you feel good. Yeah. Um, and when you feel good, you're more likely to want to have another go um, and, and then incrementally build on your skills. So, um, and, and I look, you know, there, there probably was a, a dark era in education uh, where um, students' mental health was completely sidelined and overlooked and education love it, loves its pendulums. Yeah. Um, and, um, you know, this one has probably been whacked a little bit too hard in, um, in that direction. And I see plenty of skilled teachers who um, do both, uh, address both. Um, and I'm still addressing it at the higher education level. You know, I had a, a student this semester um, email me um, and, and say that she um, had a lot of anxiety issues and that she hasn't done an exam for many years. Not all of our students are direct um, school yep. leavers. And my subject um, has an exam that's worth 45% of the subject, which is um, fairly unusual um, yep. in the course. Um, and she was essentially wanting an alternative arrangement um, for assessment. 
And I was, you know, I'm not taking all the credit here, to her credit, she was receptive to what I was saying, but I was able to present to her the argument that um, by, by working through her anxiety about that and achieving mastery, she was not, not only going to learn stuff, but yeah. she was going to feel good at yeah. the end of the semester. And yeah. that's what happened. Um, she didn't end up um, pushing for an alternative assessment. Um, she was willing to have a go um, at doing the exam. She did well. Um, and I hope that she feels a, a real sense of achievement and, and feels, you know, 10 foot taller yeah. um, that and knows that she can tackle other new things uh, yeah. that she's inevitably going to face yeah I'm, I'm sure she does i'm sure she does um the other thing that struck me from what you're saying um is you were talking about the youth justice system which is not something i know a great deal about i know that i know that if kids um and uh, leave the education system unsatisfactorily w without um good literacy skills and perhaps with without good oral language skills uh, that the outcomes for them can be fairly bleak and they could end up in the um, justice system. But I don't really know much about how it works. But it, it, I know, I, know um, I realise the connection between what people try and do in schools, which they call restorative practices, and what you were describing there. And given the complexity with which... It, um, the complexity of implementing it successfully in the criminal justice system. Um, the slightly, I have to say, amateurish ways that we try and implement something, like in, in a school not being punitive usually means there is no consequence. Mm. Um, it, uh, restorative conferences can often be the end result. So people will just talk and that's it. That's what's now resolved. Um, mm. And yeah, the, the complexity of that and how it works in the, in the justice system, when you give it to practitioners like teachers who are not trained in that, that's not their, their, their former, that's not the field that they know a great deal about, and you say, right now, bolt this onto your practice, you end mm. up with some of the uh, idiosyncrasies that you might see in, uh, in schools that are, I don't know, I don't know where, quite where I'm going with this, but I've just, I, I, as you were talking, yeah. I've drawn a parallel, be, a, a, a not very favorable comparison between the two. Yeah, yeah. And look, I think your points are all um, entirely reasonable. And I've talked to a lot of teachers about this over the years. Um, and um, if I can backtrack, but yeah. remind me if I lose my thread to yeah. come back um, to this. Um, you, you were talking, saying that you don't know a lot about the youth justice system. I will put a plug in here for Victoria's youth justice system, which is probably one of the most progressive in the world yeah. in the sense that we have a dual track system. And a lot of people aren't aware of this, that um, it's possible, uh, in fact, judges and magistrates are required where they possibly can when they're um, sentencing a 17-year-old to sentence them to a youth justice order, 17 to 20-year-olds, I think it is, to a youth justice order, not to an adult corrections order, because our system has recognised really long before the neuroscience was um, onto this as a really fashionable idea, yeah. that prefrontal regions of these young people's brains are not fully mature, that they are still developmentally a work in progress. Most of them, as I said, come from very damaged, chaotic 
harmful backgrounds, the crossover between child protection and youth justice is huge. It's yep. estimated to be around 50%. Gosh. And some of the youth, some of the child protection files I have read over the years uh, just, you know, make you want to weep that, you know, what, yeah. what some get exposed to is just unthinkable to the average person on the street. Um, so, so we've got this very progressive system in Victoria um, that means that we do our darndest to divert young people away from custodial settings. We do yeah. what we can to keep them in the community um that has a slight paradox attached to it i suppose um, in the sense that the young people who do receive custodial sentences so we've got two campuses in victoria we've got the parkville um, youth justice center in surprise surprise parkville um, yeah. in the city and then we've got Malmesbury in central Victoria, which is the senior campus. So that's those 17 to 20-year-olds and Parkville is the younger youth offenders. Um, but what it means is that the young people who do get custodial um, sentences are typically um, those young people who commit more severe offences, they're recidivist offences, they're young people who the system has already, you know, tried to do something with and failed because the, the systems are all extremely under-resourced. You know, we, we talk about um, a child protection system, but really the state, you know, when the state steps in as parent, the state is not a good parent. Yeah. The state is the kind of parent who would have its children taken away from it. <laughs> right. <Yeah. laughs> um, uh, so, so going back to, um, so that's, that's just a little bit of context about yeah. um, youth justice, because I do want to give Victoria a plug for the fabulous work that it does in diverting young people away from custodial yeah. sentences, um, because uh, particularly a custodial sentence for a young person in an adult corrections environment bodes very poorly yeah. for the future because adult prisons are universities of crime. Um, yeah. So they're exposed to a lot of antisocial role models. And remembering too that adult prisons like youth detention centres are heavily overpopulated with people who have cognitive impairments, learning difficulties, autism spectrum disorders, hearing impairments, you know, all of those um, neurobiological issues are yeah. overrepresented in the justice system. But I, I think your point is uh, very well made about um, restorative practices being well-intentioned and aligning with this diversionary, you know, therapeutic um, jurisprudence approach that we want to take rather than harsh punitive approaches. Um, but I've talked to a lot of teachers who said, well, you know, we had one training session on how to do this and in practice it's not really like how it is in the training session and, you know, kids don't answer the questions the way that we, yes. excuse me, until we don't quite know what to do. Yep. Um, and, um, and when some of the kids, as we know, are going to have language difficulties, that's going to make them look like they're withholding um, withdrawing information, it makes them behave in ways that perhaps look like they've got something to conceal. Um, and I suspect um, that in some cases what is meant to be restorative justice is delivered on the run in ways that are quite half-baked and um, ultimately punitive and unsatisfactory for everybody. Yeah. Um, I think it's hard to do well. Yeah, and I think 
setting it, uh, the other thing that you see is you set, you see it set in opposition to um, um, sort of behaviorist approaches where, you, you know, the ABC's antecedent control um, yep. behave, folks that there's then the consequence and, uh, and the most powerful stuff, I think, for teachers, um, sorry, it's just me sidetracking slightly, is um, that stuff around things like antecedent, antecedent, I can never say that, control, yep. where you think yep. about how you're going to arrange your classroom. Because a lot mm -hmm. of um, behaviours are not innate to the, the individual. They're caused by the circumstance that the individual is, is in. Mm -hmm. And you, by designing mm -hmm. the, the classroom, by designing the circumstances in a particular way, taking that into account, you can, you yep. can see off some of the issues before they arise. And there's a lot that teachers can do in that space that is very intuitive once they learn it and they can put it into practice in the classroom. Whereas yeah. trying to take a, a therapeutic approach, I think you need people with therapeutic qualifications or backgrounds or an understanding of that to do yeah. that properly. I, I sure. don't know. But. Yeah. Um, I'll give you a simple term for what you're describing. Um, when I worked in brain injury rehab, we call all of that stuff environmental manipulation. Yeah. You manipulate the environment as much as you can to try and avert um, undesirable behaviours, knowing that you're working with um, people who've got limited attention, short fuses. Um, and also things like um, uh, routines, the, the power of routines. Yeah. So it's a, if it's a routine, if it's become habituated, it's not something yeah. you have to ask students to do, and therefore it's not potentially a... a, a a situation where there's going to be a conflict or something. So you get mm. the root and, and all those sorts of things that are quite straightforward, but they're, yeah. they're often not taught to uh, new teachers uh, in my experience. Mm -hmm. I, I haven't got an audit of all the universities in the world and exactly what they teach, but um, they're often not taught to new teachers. And, but it, but things like restorative practices are, are often seen as uh, like an alternative or, or set up in opposition to those kinds of things. Yeah, and I think you're right. And, and this probably speaks a little bit to the issue of fads and fashions in education. Um, so someone kind of picked this up and thought, because um, in, in an Australian context, it really came predominantly from New Zealand, um, where it's used, it, it was it, um, used um, quite naturally amongst First Nations people um, in New Zealand and the justice system over there picked it up and then it was adapted for use over here. Um, and, and so, you know, that there's a certain degree of, um, what, what's the word I'm looking for, when, when, when things um, kind of evolve and lose fidelity, I yes. guess, um, over time. And you're right, teachers don't have that training. And, and the other tricky piece is for kids who do come from, um, you know, you can again you can use a range of um, terms here whether you want to say trauma backgrounds or you know because they're refugees or because they're exposed to domestic violence or they're victims of physical emotional sexual abuse you know all, all of those things um, there's a there's often an element of social and human capital that's been missing from their lives that's perhaps assumed in the um, the way restorative practices are rolled out in schools. Like, like yes. the idea for a lot of kids that somebody would feel empathy towards them is foreign. they are probably, you know, there are kids who've never had an adult have an mm. empathic understanding um, reaction to their circumstances. 
they've probably never had an adult genuinely apologise to them. So they don't have the language. You know, Daniel Willingham talks about social capital and human capital. Um, and, you know, it's, it's not just these, that these kids come from economically poor backgrounds in many cases. It's just that they haven't experienced the fact that people can be nice and respectful to yeah. each other. Yeah, so it's not only is it based on... Uh, it's a pro- process based on oral language competence, but it also reflects certain assumptions about the world and values and things like that. Look, yeah, um, yeah. it's a very interesting thing. I want to get on to, though, um, literacy. Um, yep. Now, uh, I just the other day, I got another um, uh, f- paper pinged through my RSS feeds, and it was talking about multiliteracies, um, and I kind of uh, um, mm. had a bit of a sigh. Well, there's a reason for that, but I won't, I won't say what it is. What's literacy mean to you? Yeah, look, it's a good, a good question. It's one of those words that's been um, appropriated, I think, in education and, and, and perhaps not just in education. Um, and it's become a bit of an omnibus term for competency in X. Yeah. Um, you know, so we talk about health literacy or um, financial literacy. Um, and yeah, PISA apparently assesses scientific literacy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I rest my case. Yeah. Um, so I'm a bit old school and I like to talk about reading ability. Um, and, you know, technically I think we should be talking about reading, writing and spelling. Um, so, I mean, li- literacy to me, um, you know, embodies all of the components of engaging with language um, and um, I guess literacy um, technically for me means written language. Yeah. I'm, I'm not a fan of the term oral literacy. Um, people use that term sometimes and I, it jars with me. I think I don't really know what you're talking about. Talk to me about oral language yeah. or written language, but yeah. I don't like oral literacy. Um, so, yeah, look, I'm old school and, um, yes, kids can have access to multiple literacies, but through a doorway that's got reading written do, on Do it. you think there's a danger when people talk about multiliteracies? I will say now why I side. I worry that, because it, sometimes it's like um, pictures, for instance. Like, So oh, I, I'm yeah. looking at this picture and this picture's telling me mm-hmm. blah, blah, blah. And I think, well, are, are we at risk of fooling ourselves into saying, mm-hmm. okay, so this kid can't read. But actually, yeah. they've got good picture literacy or whatever it is. So, they're, so they've got literacy and then we're kind of papering over the cracks. Absolutely. Well, that's, that's my view. Um, and we're giving ourselves a, um, a kind of a free pass um, because we, we can say, well, um, you know, yes, this, this kid is um, literate in a 21st century way um, because they can lift a meaning from a, a diagram or an image or something like that um, or send an SMS or, or whatever. Um, but, you know, to, to be literate, um, to be able to fully engage um, with the written word, the written sentence, the, the written text of different genres. And academic yeah. forms of writing, which you need to oh. be able to engage with to learn at a high, high school absolutely. level. Yeah, absolutely, and, and beyond. Um, it seems that that is a privilege that is being afforded to a smaller and smaller proportion of um, the community in first world industrialised nations. Mm. Well, what, what I, 
one of the um, what I wanted to get on to next because it sort of first talking about literacy, and you've written about this, um, an approach to teaching. Well, I would say early reading, writing, and spelling, but it gets this all gets a bit fuzzy. But a, an approach that's very popular in Australia is uh, balanced literacy. Mm -hmm. uh, now you've written about that. Now I, I, I'm interested in your thoughts on on it. What is it? Um, you know, and and I, I don't think you're a fan. So where does it fall down in your opinion? Sure, sure. Well, it falls down for me at, at the first pass. I mean, there are historical reasons why I think it's flawed, and I'm happy to talk about those. But you asked me, what is it? Um, and that's the first question that's very difficult to answer in any kind of robust, um, objective kind of way. Because I, as a researcher, could go into one of my local primary schools here in Bendigo and talk to the foundation year teachers and two of the teachers could tell me that they take a balanced literacy approach to early reading instruction and be doing vastly different things. Yeah. Now, some in education might say that's fine. That's about teacher autonomy. Yeah. Um, for me as a researcher, it's a nightmare yeah. uh, because I don't know what I'm looking at. It, you know, it becomes a Humpty Dumpty term, really, um, that it's up to teacher discretion um, to uh, to present things um, in the order um, and using the materials that they like but very much from the it's very heavily influenced of course by its um, ancestral pedagogy whole language and the um, the father of whole language in many respects was the so late the late um, dr. Kenneth Goodman who was very big on this idea that the teacher is the expert in the classroom and should be very wary of um, other um, experts such as you know education researchers and cognitive psychologists yeah. um, because what they know they don't know your children so um, it's a bit of this and a bit of that now a lot of people will hate me saying that um, and I'm not popular for saying that but until someone can uh, and I've, I've read a lot of the literature on balanced literacy and and that's what a lot of the balanced literature literacy literature says yeah um, um, so um, it, it doesn't have a scope and sequence it, it doesn't have a you know a logical beginning point and a way of organizing and ordering things in line with what we were talking about earlier um, you know in terms of cognitive load and working memory um, it doesn't make provision for um, spaced and mass practice and um, you know, the things that we think are probably important um, from a cognitive load. so it's not um, systematic and that's an important word in terms yeah. of the various um, government reviews in the US, the UK and Australia into right. the teaching of early reading. Is that the key? Is that is that the main problem with balanced literacy, that la lack of being systematic? Um, that's one problem with it. Another problem uh, is, as I mentioned, its ancestral roots in whole language. And many people say that it's just a rebadging of whole language. Um, Alison Clark's referred to it as, you know, whole language with some lipstick on. Yeah. Um, so kids are still introduced to banks of so-called sight words, dolt words, high-frequency words. Uh, Golden to words. Learn by Golden yeah. words, yeah. Yeah, that's right. 
to learn by rote, which, as you know, for you and me would be like giving us um, lists of wingdings um, yeah. on flashcards and being told to go home, excuse me, particularly for children who don't come from home literacy environments that are, have been rich in text exposure in the preschool years, you know, where they're being exposed to written text in many cases, not for the first time, but that it's their first really full-on exposure to written text, then it would be like um, us dealing with windings. Um, balanced literacy classrooms are still very reliant on predictable level readers on multi-queuing, um, so uh, you, you know, you, you'll have seen those Venn diagrams or so-called Venn diagrams. I don't think yeah. it really is. I'm talking to a maths teacher. I don't yeah. think it's mathematically a, a, no. um, a Venn diagram um, where kids are ex uh, encouraged when they encounter a word that they can't um, read to take their eyes off the text, um, which is completely counterintuitive when you're teaching anyone how to do anything, to give them a practice that takes them away from that thing, getting them to do something else that's not necessarily helpful, look at the picture, try and work out what kind of word might work. And of course, advocates of balanced literacy say, and I've had this said to me many times, oh, but phonics is in the mix. Yeah. And my response to that is it's not enough for it to be in the mix. Um, if we look at the simple view of reading, um, then we know that there are two core components to that process of um, initial um, mastery of the reading process that the children have to be able to decode the written word. They've got to be able to lift it off the page and understand it from a linguistic um, perspective. And, and so advocates of balanced literacy want to put meaning first. Yeah. Uh, we all agree that meaning is the critical piece with reading. Um, but people who advocate for um, the science of reading, as it's often referred to now, do advocate for that systematic process of breaking something complex down to small manageable units and building up from there and creating success and achievement and mastery. Yeah, I think uh, it's certainly, in terms of cognitive load theory, it makes a lot of sense. Uh, and um, people like... Um, uh, Jean Chaw, I don't know, yep. I never know whether to say her name right. Yeah, uh, she, she, she actually went through three cycles, I believe, of reviewing the evidence for uh, essentially phonics, although it's changed over time mm -hmm. and the comparison to conditions change over time. But it's essentially the question is do you break things down to mm -hmm. um, the small components in the word and then put them back together or do you start on a more holistic level? Did, mm -hmm. I'm generalizing a lot, but that's essentially the question. Three times, every time she, she reviewed the literature, um, she found that uh, breaking things down systematically was a better approach. However, yeah. her story is one of a failure of acceptance. Why did she have to review the same thing three times? And there's quite a lot of frustration. If you read the uh, Academic Achievement Challenge, I think that's what it's called, the, the, at the start of that, she, she expresses quite a lot of frustration about the fact that, peop, that um, people won't accept this fine. Have you any thoughts on why it's so hard to get people to accept? Because uh, it's only one part of reading. Uh, as you say, the, the simple view of reading, you've got the, the decoding side, although that might be a contentious word, but then you've got the oral language side and then they kind of fit together. It's not like you just learn to read once. You've got to 
you, you've got to develop your vocabulary as you go and get to that point where you can engage in the more academic texts later on. But um, the, the decode, but we're talking about the decoding side. So it's not all of reading, and no one claims it is. No. Why that teaching of decoding in a systematic way? Have you got any thoughts on why there is so much resistance to that, and why it is so hard to make that case? I think, um, as with all complex issues, um, there's complex answers. So there's yeah. not one single reason. And you might need to bring me back to the question because this is the <laughs> kind of I can easily digress on. Um, one of them is uh, one of the issues is ideological um, about what reading is. So the you know the whole language um, position on what reading is is that it's about um, deriving meaning from text and that can be very much driven by um, the, the, the reader. Um, so the meaning that you derive from the text might be different from the meaning that I derive from the text and we don't have to be constrained by what the actual text is. So oh, a sort of death of the author kind of approach. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's right. Very postmodern yeah. sort of text yeah. on, on reading and, yeah. you know, that's a sort of multiple literacies kind yeah. of uh, line of thinking, I suppose. Um, so, so there is that sort of ideological um, position that it's more child-centred to allow the child to create their own meaning out of the text and it's very teacher-centred to say, um, no, there's a way to do this and we're going to break it down into small units and I'm going to show you how and we're going to practice it and do it again and, and keep doing it until you've mastered it. Oh, it's these nasty teachers who want kids to, to comply and to do as they're told. Yeah. That's right, that's yeah. right. Um, now, the, the other issue, I think, um, is, and, and as a consequence of that, of course, a lot of those um, pedagogical skills and knowledge bases were incrementally, systematically eroded out of teacher pre-service education. So if you talk to people like um, a cousin of mine who did her teacher training in one of the teacher state colleges um, back in the early 1970s, she was taught systematic synthetic phonics. Yeah. And, she, and she used it for the rest of her teaching career, no matter what was going on around <laughs> yeah. her. Shut the classroom um, door, let them get on with it. This is what exactly, I'm going to do. Yeah. Exactly. And yeah. that's how she taught reading. And she was a, a, a passionate advocate for that. She's retired now, but and still is a passionate advocate for systematic synthetic phonics, taught in a lot of disadvantaged, low SES schools. And uh, the kids that she taught learned how to read. Yeah. Um, but... You know, in many cases, graduates coming out of ITE programs now are not taught what a phoneme is, um, what a grapheme is, what a digraph is, what a schwa vowel is, how speech maps to print. Um, the fact that print is a representation of sorts of spoken language, um, that we have these things called morphemes that are small units of meaning that tie to etymology, which is the origins of words. So, you know, sometimes I use the expression that it's really helpful for teachers to know about how language works under the bonnet. Yeah. Um, you know, most of us can get in our car and turn the key and it doesn't matter what we know about what's going on under the bonnet. Teachers do actually need to know what's going on under the bonnet because they need to be making constant small adjustments and they need an explicit knowledge in that space, not an implicit knowledge. Yeah. Um, but the other factor that I think we perhaps don't talk about enough is that these whole language balance literacy approaches work for some kids. 
Yeah. Um, and, and that sort of perpetuates the idea yeah. that, um, well, they must be okay. And, and I don't think we know, excuse me, exactly at a population level what percentage of kids they work for, and it will vary by postcode, no doubt, um, because they probably work better for kids like your kids and my kids who have home literacy environments that um, have been very rich. They've been exposed to um, complex language, lots of text exposure, doing lots of writing from an early age. Um, so there are some children, and that's not to say, however, that children from more um, advantaged backgrounds don't struggle in balanced yeah. literacy environments. There's plenty of evidence that they do. But, but there is a significant proportion of children who learn okay. So this is essentially a, a reasoning issue. It's the fact that we naturally kind of reason anecdotally. So we can say, oh, this approach works because I know this kid and this kid and this kid who learned. But what we don't yeah. na naturally do is say, yeah, but the proportion of kids that would learn from this approach is lower than the proportion that would learn effectively if we used a slightly different approach. We can always point to examples of kids who learnt from whatever approach, what we're talking exactly. about is what's optimal. And that's probably that's right. a counterintuitive way of reasoning for most people. That's right. And practitioners, are, you know, by virtue of, you know, where they work and how they're positioned in the system, are looking at small N samples. You know, they're looking at their classrooms or clinicians are looking at their... Um, students who they're working with one-to-one -one or in small groups. We really need to look at this at a population level. This is yeah. more an epidemiological issue and take into account our, what's often referred to as a long tail of under underachievement. Yeah. Um, so if we want to lift that tail, we've got to be using practices that um, promote achievement for well, at least 95% of students. You know, we, we can all accept that there's probably 5% of students who... Do we have, know it's 5%? Do we have a figure? 5% you know, is, um, you know, what's often... The figure that's often um, bandied around. That It's a much smaller percentage than what we see played out in yeah. reality. Um, so in reality, you know, it might be 30 to 60%, depending on where you are, yeah. of children who have got weak literacy skills. And I know lots of teachers don't like the term instructional casualties, but I, yeah. I think we just have to um, put our grown-up pants on and yeah. deal with it. Um, yeah. Because um, at a system level, if we're doing things that are not optimal, then we may be producing... If 30% of kids are not learning to read and the base rate should be five then that's a problem. And yeah, yeah. We, we could talk, I reckon, for hours, and I'll, I will want to get you back on at some point if, if I can sure. manage to keep going with the podcast, because there's so many of, I've got a list of questions. We have, we've already we've talked about um, half of them. But the, before, we, before we do finish up, I would mm -hmm. like to talk about, um, briefly about your book with Caroline Bowen, um, Making Sense of Interventions for Children with Developmental Disorders. It's a kind of, it's a little bit of a, a sort of encyclopedia because it's got entries on various different kinds of um, interventions that you could deploy. Could you tell me um, what um, what brought you and uh, Caroline Bowen to the the thinking that you needed to write a book of this kind, and what were you hoping to achieve with it? 
Okay, well, you might laugh when you hear the answer to the first question. Um, Caroline and I, before we wrote this book, had never met. Um, yeah. we, our paths had sort of crossed in various different kinds of ways over the years, but we'd never physically met. But we did engage with each other quite a bit on Twitter. And Caroline was... Twitter's um, <laughs> a whole other story. Yeah. Um, so Caroline flagged something on Twitter one day about, I'm sad and ashamed to say, a speech pathologist who was advocating astrological psychology for children with learning difficulties. And right. it would be for their parents to understand the influence of their zodiac sign um, for uh, addressing their learning difficulties. So you can imagine yeah. that. Um, was kind of um, Caroline was having conniptions about this, and yes. I saw the tweet and chimed in, and you know agreed that it was outrageous and unacceptable, and so we were immediately having brickbats thrown at us by this person who believed very vehemently um, in this approach. And Caroline, Caroline DM'd me. Um, for those of you who uh, use Twitter, you'll know that that means uh, direct messaged me and said um, we should write a book about all these pseudoscientific yeah. um, interventions. And I said, I was in the middle of doing something else, and I was at work, and I said, yes, we absolutely should. Um, and before I knew it, in my email inbox, there was a book proposal. <laughs> <laughs> she held you to it. <laughs> and I thought, oh, boy, we're really yeah. going to have to do this. Um, and I have to say um, that particular project was one of the most satisfying um, things I've ever done. It was wonderful working with Caroline. We did, she lives in the Blue Mountains. We did actually get to physically um, meet and we've, we've met obviously a couple of times um, since and we're now working on the second edition and we're working on another uh, sort of a version of that book which is um, a roadmap which we want, some of the feedback that we've had about this book and really to go to your question, it was really to try and um, demystify the marketplace for parents, yeah. teachers, clinicians in that order. Parents, yeah. teachers and clinicians because there's so much stuff out there that looks authoritative, that looks real. Um, that but in has... reality it's like astrology dressed up as something or, yeah. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And, and little or no substance and people create these websites where they produce what they call white papers about their approach, you yeah. know, a very fancy sounding name. And it just means a document we knocked up in the back room, but we're calling it a white paper because that looks like it's got some gravitas to yeah, it. Yeah, this is our research. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. So we wanted to demystify the, the marketplace. I think we probably um, did a better job of doing that for um, teachers and clinicians than we did for parents, which is okay. why our roadmap project, which is the next one that we're working on, we, we hope we'll speak a bit more directly to parents and be a bit less academic, I suppose. You know, okay. th this probably reads a bit more like a textbook, the, the current version. Um, and uh, so we've got a second edition. Um, we, well, we will have a second edition. If Caroline listens to this, she'll say, Pam, I haven't seen anything from you yet. Um, <laughs> and there will be a second edition of Making Sense. Um, and we are currently working on the, the roadmap version. So we're, we're really wanting to provide a bit of an antidote, I suppose, to a lot of the uh, what's sometimes referred to as neuroflap doodle out yeah. there. 
um, that's often presented in very attractive packages and looks very convincing. Um, and we want parents to recognise that um, you know, the notion that, well, it can't do any harm, it needs to be challenged because children's time is valuable yeah. and they can't get time back that they've lost in some nonsensical time Pushing waste. buttons on a um, working memory training yeah. package. Yeah. <laughs> did you, did you, did, have you discovered many more um, uh, new ones between the, um, the first edition and the... Yes, <laughs> yeah. We've both got folders on our computers um, and uh, yes, look, you know, this could turn into a, a set of 36 Encyclopedia Britannicas Gosh. that everybody needs in their home, Encyclopedia of nonsense. Okay. That's right. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you, Pam. Thank you so much for your time. Um, and yeah, um, hopefully uh, we'll speak to you again sometime. I'll look forward to that, Greg. Thank you very Cheers. much. Thank you. Thank you.